Welcome to Compassion Compass. While most of us recognize that treating others with compassion is important, many of us struggle with turning the compass of compassion toward ourselves. We live in a society that encourages us to beat ourselves up in order to get ahead. However, this only leads us to feel more anxious, insecure, and disconnected. In this podcast, I make a space for honest and vulnerable conversations about the self-compassion journey in order to help you, dear listener, orient your compassion compass inward to meet yourself with unconditional understanding, kindness, and support to better weather the storms of life. I am Dr. Regina Lazarovich, a clinical psychologist and your host for today's conversation. Can you let go of the mindset one day you will? Can you let go of the mindset that it has to be filled? Can you let go of your That's a race I'd like to win. Can you look me in the face a bit? Cause I'm afraid I don't. Hello, lovely listeners. This is Regina. I am super excited about today's episode. It is focused on sex, which is a subject that is often considered to be taboo, and yet is the cause of a lot of shame and self-doubt for many people, which is why I think that it's important to talk about. My goal with this episode is to reduce shame and stigma around sexuality and have more people access the pleasure that they are worthy of having. If you like this episode, please share it with anyone who would benefit from anything discussed. I would also really appreciate it if you could leave a nice rating and review for Compassion Compass on iTunes. This will help more people who could benefit from self-compassion find this podcast. And now, it is my pleasure to introduce you to today's guest, the wonderful Dr. Emily Nagoski. Emily earned a master's degree in counseling psychology and a PhD in health behavior with a concentration in human sexuality from Indiana University. She completed her clinical internship at the Kinsey Institute Sexual Health Clinic. For eight years, Emily served as the director of wellness education at Smith College before transitioning to full-time writing and speaking. She is the author of the New York Times best-selling book, Come As You Are, the surprising new science that will transform your sex life, which I highly recommend. Emily's mission in life is to teach women to live with confidence and joy inside their bodies. In today's episode, Emily and I discuss what popular culture gets wrong about sex and sexual desire, the dual control model of sexual arousal, how to turn on the ons and turn off the offs, the ways in which sexual interest is context dependent, arousal non-concordance, spontaneous and responsive desire, the use of mindfulness in dealing with genital pain and sexual trauma, the best predictor of relationship and sexual satisfaction, why sexual fantasies may not match up with real life desires, and how Emily found her way out of an abusive relationship and learned to stop blaming herself. And now, welcome to the show, Dr. Emily Nagoski. Watch me fall in and watch me learn. 
and we're recording. All right, welcome to the show, Emily Nagoski. I am so excited to have you here today. Um, I'm a huge fan um, of your book, Come As You Are, and I really, really believe that you're doing important work and improving the lives of so many people. Well, thank you so much. And um, I guess I would like to start with that. Um, I would like to start with uh, having you speak a bit about the role of Mm self-compassion in the work that you do. It's in many ways the foundation of what I do. There are really two major components of being a sex educator for grown-ups. One is the straight-up education. How does the sexual response mechanism work? And it's not the way almost any of us got taught that it works. Uh, And then the second part is how do you feel about the way it actually works? And how do you feel about the fact that the way that it works is not how you were taught that it was supposed to work. And so you've been walking around for probably decades of your life, believing your sexuality was supposed to work one way when actually that's not true at all. Um, Self-compassion is the fundamental skill to be able to turn toward your internal experience, your sexual experience, your trauma history, your body image with kindness and compassion and warmth. And I have this image of people like you sit next to yourself on a park bench, you know, Mm -hmm. and you are the kind, compassionate friends who can listen to somebody who's been going through something for a long time. Our ability to do that for ourselves is really essential, particularly for women healing from a culture that has been lying to them their whole lives about what their sexuality is supposed to be. Yeah, and I would really love it if you could go into more specific detail about that. So, Mm -hmm. you know, you started, you mentioned the um, sexual response. Can you Mm -hmm. say some more about that? Yeah, so this is one of the most important ideas in the book is this thing called the dual control model, which is the actual mechanism in your brain that governs how sexual response works. And dual control model, how many parts does it have? It has two parts, right, again. And if the first part is a sexual accelerator or the gas pedal, that means the second part must be the the brake. Yeah. Mm. So the accelerator is the part we're all sort of familiar with. It notices all the sex-related information in the environment. Anything that you see, hear, smell, touch, taste, or imagine that your brain codes as a sex-related stimulus, and that sends the turn-on signal, right? Um, And it's functioning all the time, including right now. The fact that we are talking about sex is just a tiny bit sexually relevant, and so you're getting a tiny bit of turn-on signal. At the same time that that's happening, your brake is working all the time to notice all the potential threats in the environment. Everything that you see, smell, taste, touch, hear, or imagine that your brain codes as a good reason not to be turned on right now. And it sends a message that says, turn off. So both of them are working all the time in parallel which means the process of becoming aroused is the dual process of turning on the ons and turning off the offs. Uh, And most of the time when people give advice about people who are having difficulty with arousal, orgasm, desire, uh, what they do is they talk about the stuff that hits the accelerator, add more, role play, porn, lube, lingerie, what all those things are great if you like them, try them, sure. 
And it turns out then when most people are struggling, it's not because there's too little stimulation to the gas pedal. It's because there's too much stimulation to the brake. The brake is really what stops us from being able to access sexual pleasure and desire. Right. And all sorts of things can hit the brake, right? Yeah, yeah. And can you speak to that some more? Because, you know, you kind of mentioned how um, self-compassion can play a role, mm -hmm. a helpful role in releasing the brake. Absolutely. Yes. Um, so some of the things that hit the brake are easy, simple things to deal with, like you're worried that someone might walk in. So you lock the door or you're thinking about how your phone might ring in the middle of it. So you turn off your phone. Um, uh, one of my favorite examples is uh, your feet are cold. <laughs> when they do research on orgasm, uh, like brain scan research, right. participants have to masturbate to orgasm in a brain scanning machine, which is like the least sexy context you can imagine. You're in this big magnet, people are scanning your brain, there's all this noise. Um, it's really difficult. Even among the people who are willing to volunteer to participate in this study, only about half can actually get to orgasm but they can significantly increase their likelihood of having an orgasm if they put on socks, hmm. researchers found. And you, you're like, wow, why would that be true? It turn, it's not that they have foot fetishes, it's not about blood flow, it's that their feet were cold. And so when they put on socks, their feet weren't cold, so they weren't distracted, which was hitting the brake, so you release the brake and they can make it to orgasm. The neurological marker for orgasm is not an increase of acceleration. It is the release of the brake. So sometimes it's simple, easy stuff like that. Like if you're distracted by grit on the sheets, change those sheets, right? Simple stuff. Um, and then there's the larger scale stuff, relationship issues, lack of trust in a relationship in particular, um, trauma history, of course, body image stuff, like if you're in the middle of doing the sexy things, and instead of paying attention to the pleasurable sensations happening in your body, uh, instead of that, you're paying attention to thoughts like, how is my neck looking? And how are my boot? And how does my partner see what happening with my body and the jiggle in the place and the cottage cheese? If you're having all those thoughts, is that is that hitting the accelerator? No, <laughs> totally hitting the brake, right? Yeah. Those sorts of like body self-criticism yeah. are really destructive to sexual pleasure, but they're very deeply implanted and it takes self-compassion is one of the most evidence-based practices for uprooting those self-critical thoughts about our bodies so that we can free ourselves from those things that hit our brakes and obstruct us from accessing sexual pleasure. There is a meta break that comes with that, like a break about the break. If a person begins to think about uh, releasing the break around body self-criticism, this sort of like higher level voice comes in that says, no, you're not allowed to stop yourself from criticizing your body just to access sexual pleasure because you don't deserve sexual pleasure until you conform to some ideal of how your body is supposed to look, right? Yeah. And so that's another thing you have to turn toward with compassion, like, hello, voice about my self-criticism. You're, I understand that you have an important role to play, like you're trying to protect me, and I want to thank you for the work that you are doing, and it's just not true that I don't deserve pleasure until my body is different. I deserve all the pleasure my body is capable of right now no matter what shape my body is, no matter how I feel otherwise. And so you can go on vacation, you can go lie by the pool, 
with some like reflective stuff under your chin. Get yourself a tan if you like. And uh, you just sit at the back seat right now. Come visit me when I'm not in the middle of sexy times. <laughs> yeah, so a lot that you kind of hit on there. I mean, first of all, I loved seeing Health at Every Size mentioned um, in your book. And it sounds yeah. like that would be, you know, very helpful with, um, you know, reducing uh, body shame and yes. self-image issues um, yes. and opening up to yeah. pleasure in the body yeah. that you have right now because you deserve You're allowed. That. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and also uh, you're talking about uh, mindfulness, right? Mm -hmm. um, yep. Which I, I really appreciated as well in your book and that that's actually, you know, speaking of trauma, that that's one of the most helpful things for for yes. dealing with that when it comes to the impact on your um, sexuality. Uh, so I, I guess, um, yeah, the thing you, you talked about in the book um, on the chapter on meta-emotions mm -hmm. is that it, the not judging of your experience is the most important yes. part. Yes. Can you speak some more to that? Yeah, so when I was looking at the research, I I thought it was going to be the awareness. I thought it was going to be about being attuned to what's happening in your body, and I was totally wrong. It turns out the secret ingredient in mindfulness is the non-judgment. Um, so uh, there's a study they did, I love this study, on people with generalized anxiety disorder, and they assessed a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, they assessed what the people's symptoms were, uh, how often they happened, how severe they were, how much they impacted a person's general quality of life. And they asked the questions on the five factors of mindfulness. So how mindful were these people? And it turned out the variable that was most significantly associated with a person's overall well-being was not how frequent the symptoms were. It wasn't even how intense the symptoms were. The best predictor of a person's well-being when they experience generalized anxiety, it was how people felt about their symptoms. So if people feel non-judging of their internal experience when they notice, oh, look, there's my heart beating faster, or oh, look, there's my thoughts seeming to move faster, and they could notice that in a non-judging, just neutral kind of way, um, then their quality of life was much better, even than a person whose symptoms were less intense or less frequent. If that person was really unhappy and uncomfortable, if they felt out of control when they noticed their symptoms, if they felt like there was something really badly wrong, if they were afraid of their symptoms or angry at their symptoms. The other way that I was wrong about mindfulness is I thought when it turned out it's not just awareness, it's how you're aware it's this neutral non-judging. I thought, well, won't it be even better if you can turn with like love and enjoyment of your symptoms? Like what if you can really love your anxiety symptoms? What if you can really love your self-critical thoughts and like the parts of yourself that are healing from trauma? If you can do that, that's great. And it turns out it is not at all necessary. You can absolutely heal and make lots of progress simply with neutral noticing, just being aware of it and allowing it to be what it is is just as effective as enthusiastic love for those difficult, challenging parts of ourselves. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, um, I'm a psychologist and I actually have a private practice and my specialization is anxiety. Mm -hmm. So yeah, and I mean, the first thing is just 
making space for the experience in a yeah. non-judging way for sure and that that aspect of like loving loving the discomfort <laughs> um that could that in and of itself could then feel like pressure and judgment right if you don't succeed at it and i think that's yeah. what you were talking about the, exactly. the matter break right like, mm -hmm. yeah that makes sense. like you're like oh as, as when people first begin learning about self-compassion or about mindfulness uh they try to practice it and they notice that they're like not doing it and they start to beat themselves up for failing at right. self-compassion you're like okay yeah. yeah that just aim for neutral yeah aim for neutral yeah exactly yeah, and same with, you know, body acceptance. I find that Absolutely. that's, you know, quite similar there too. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm kind of, this is making me think of that spectatoring effect though, that you, mm -hmm. were, that you were mentioning, which which is also like an observing of yourself. Can you speak to that and how it's actually different from what we're talking about with, with mindfulness? So spectatoring is this phenomenon, it's very, very common, especially in women, but for everyone, of instead of noticing pleasure that's happening inside your body, you are instead sort of watching yourself perform your sexuality, thinking about how you're doing it and what you're doing and whether you're doing it right, um, and are you following the rules and are you meeting your partner's expectations and worrying about the sex you're having while you're having it, which, is that gonna hit the accelerator? <laughs> it's, I think, closely tied to anxiety. It's being, it, it can escalate into anxiety about sexuality, especially if you notice yourself doing it and then you start beating yourself up for the fact that you are doing it is can escalate uh, really quickly. So just noticing that it's happening and being like, hello, self-critical thoughts, hello, ideas of performance. I can have you literally any other time. Right now I'm gonna set you over to one side and I'm gonna turn my attention toward the pleasure that's happening right here. Um, and as, of course, as soon as you turn your attention to the pleasure happening inside your body, more self-critical thoughts will bubble up. That is normal, that's how it goes. And you just go, hello, more self-critical thoughts. I'm just going to set you over to one side. I'm going to return my attention to the pleasure happening in my body. And the more often you do that, the easier it will become. And the more often you do that, uh, the smaller and smaller and smaller those self-critical thoughts will become until they're almost nothing and they just flit right by with you barely even noticing them. Hmm. That makes sense. I guess that makes me think of what if you're not noticing pleasure in your body in that process. So what if it's difficult, yeah. you know, to, to notice pleasure? What if, you know, there's neutral sensations or... You know. Yeah, so this is where uh, the awareness itself does come in handy. There's a new book out. Uh, it was just published this year. I wrote the foreword for it. I love it so much. I talk a lot about Income As You Are about the research of Lori Brado. She just had a book come out. She does all this research on mindfulness and sex. Her Ooh. book is called Better Sex Through Mindfulness. I will have it's to read it. spectacular. Read it. I will. Have her on your podcast. She is so wonderful. She has worked with all different kinds of populations, including trauma survivors and also women who've experienced gynecological cancers, working on using mindfulness-based interventions to help women access sexual pleasure, even when they're experiencing, uh, so women who experience vulvodynia or uh, other forms of genital pain with sex, like how do you treat those? There's very few evidence-based interventions. It turns out mindfulness is a really powerful intervention 
for women experiencing pain. Can I tell you about one of the uh, mindfulness practices she does? Oh, absolutely, with, yes. Yeah, so this, she tells this really beautiful story. Uh, she works with women who experience, so vulvodynia uh, vestibulitis specifically is if you imagine someone brushes like just like the, they pull out the cottony tip of a Q-tip and just brush that little bit of cotton against your vulva mm -hmm. and it causes excruciating pain. Mm -hmm. Like that's the kind of pain we're talking about. Yeah. Um, in the book, what I say is the only thing that doesn't count as normal with your sexuality is unwanted pain. That's the sort of pain where you talk to a medical provider. Yes so that you can get the diagnosis, but it turns out a really effective treatment is this mindfulness. So she teaches the basic mindfulness skills and on the pain day, she asks them to practice a meditation where, so for example, if you raise your arm above your head and you just notice the sensations of what it feels like to hold your arm above your head and keep it above your head for 20 minutes, they just neutrally notice the sensation of holding your arm above your head. And how does your arm feel when you've held it above your head for even two minutes? Like it gets real uncomfortable, real fast. And these women are practicing being able to notice neutrally what that sensation is. And I don't know what the brain mechanism is, but this practice of neutral noticing of the pain releases them from the intensity of the pain. The pain diminishes, their sexual pain diminishes in the future when they learn how not to turn with fear and upset toward the pain, but turn with neutral noticing, like, oh, there's that sensation. Yeah, that's, and I will definitely link to her book in the yeah. show notes. That's fantastic. Um, thank you for sharing that. And that, that makes me think of the research of John Kabat-Zinn, um, mm -hmm. who developed mindfulness-based stress reduction for uh, people with chronic pain. Yes, And so this, exactly. this sounds like it's quite similar to that. Yeah, she's trained by John Kabat-Zinn, oh, I believe. Okay. I, could, I, I, I could be wrong about that, but I think I know for sure that they've talked about this. And she's actually talked to him about how in the recordings, he doesn't talk about the genitals. Like when he does body scans, yeah. he leaves the pelvis and genitals out. And she sort of was like, hey, hmm, <laughs> how come... And he's like, you know, in person, when I lead these meditations, I talk, I include the pelvis and the genitals. And he, he may begin including them in future recordings. Because so. if you leave it out, you're just reinforcing the idea that there's this blank area that doesn't exist. And you shut the door on it and increase people's sense of like, that part of my body doesn't belong to me. Yeah, I mean, it's so unfortunate that there's so much shame yeah. um, and stigma associated with just just like it's, it's just a part of your body yeah. but um, it yeah. begins so early in life a woman uh, tweeted me this story she had read come as you are and then she watched her adult brother changing his baby daughter's diaper and when she was all clean and ready for her new diaper this little infant reaches down and touches her own vulva and dad goes ah don't touch that oh, oh. yeah and she, this woman who tweeted me was like, before I read the book, I would never have thought one way or the other about it. But suddenly I was like, what are we teaching her? She's not going to remember that moment. But given the sort of sex negative culture that we live in, that tiny moment is going to accumulate with countless other tiny moments like it into and train her brain to respond to sexual stimulation with 
the breaks. Like that's how people get locked up around their sexuality is when they learn that a sexual sensation is also a threatening sensation. Right. The that's how we disconnect yeah. from our bodies. Exactly. Yeah, so kind of negatively, yeah, you're right, our culture very much conditions um, sexuality with, you know, all these negative things, especially for women, which is why I, mm -hmm. I really love, you know, when you start your book with this, and in all your talks, you really emphasize this, that everyone is normal. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I, yeah, I want you to speak a bit more about that and why it's so important for you to relay that message. Yeah. So the thing about women is they vary tremendously from each other so that even though there is, I mean, there's not just one mainstream cultural narrative about the way women's sexuality is supposed to work. And that's kind of one of the problems is there's the sort of like Cosmo women's magazine orgasmic in 78 different ways and always performing and always uh, wanting sex and always being super good at sex and like six different ways to blow his mind tonight kind of thing. Right. But then there's also the more sort of moral strain of like, you're never supposed to want sex. You're only supposed to have sex to make your male partner happy. Um, and any pleasure you experience is coincidental and you should ignore it and feel terrible about it. Um, and then there's the medical model of how your sexuality is supposed to work. This idea that there is one linear specific way you're exposed to experience desire. And if it doesn't work that way, then there's something medically wrong with you and you need to have something medically treated. Uh, and no, none of those are right. <laughs> One of the frustrating things is the research, the research in sexual physiology really only started in the 1950s and 60s. It wow. began a little bit with Kinsey and then with Masters and Johnson and they were doing their best starting really from scratch. So this is a really new area of research. We were doing this kind of research around the cardiovascular system, you know, in the 1600s. Right. Like that's how much, imagine if we were in like 1680 trying to understand our sexuality. That's how much we know about how sex works. It is not advanced because there just hasn't been time yet because of the shame around it. So when people think of their sexuality, what they got taught early in their life, no matter what combination of these three models, the medical model, the sort of pop culture model and the moralizing religious model, everybody's got some blend of these in their head and none of them are an accurate representation of what women really experience. What women really experience is this really complex phenomenon of the dual control mechanism of simultaneously, you can be turned on and not turned on simultaneously. And that's real. And, and you can enjoy, like a, sen a sensation can be sexual and result in genital response and also not pleasurable. And that too is normal. So all of this variety of experience are all normal. When we talk to other people about their experiences, their experiences are going to be different from ours. And that is also normal because it is so complex. Can I talk a little about um, the way pleasure works? Just to help normalize that experience. You to, yes. Yeah. Like, yeah, so, non-concordance stuff or, yeah. Uh, so yes, we'll get to that because oh. that's super important. Okay. Yes. Um, so the simplest way to talk about it is just to think of tickling. Like we all know, tickling is not everybody's favorite, but 
you can at least hypothetically imagine a scenario where you're a certain special someone, you're already in a fun, flirty, playful, sexy kind of state of mind. You've been on some hot date together and things are moving in a direction and your partner tickles you. And that could potentially feel really good and lead to other things. But if that exact same certain special someone tries to tickle you when you're pissed off and in the middle of a fight, does that feel really good? No. You want to punch him in the face, right? Like, it's just so annoying. It's exactly the same sensation. But the context is different. And so the way your brain actually interprets that sensation is exactly the opposite. It actually, there's a a tuning that happens in your emotional brain, then a nucleus accumbens shell. When you are in a stressed out, threatened state of mind, it shifts. Like imagine it changing color like a stoplight so that it turns red when you're stressed out and threatened. And when you're feeling safe and calm and happy and trusting and loving, it turns green and will interpret almost any sensation as something to move toward with curiosity. And then whenever the stress comes along again, the nucleus accumbens shell turns red and it will interpret any sensation as something to be avoided as a potential threat. Even stimuli that in a different context, when it was green, it would have interpreted as something to approach. And that's normal. So there's no such thing as just like, here's my list of turn-ons and my list of turn-offs. It's about these things turn me on given the right context, and these things turn me off given the wrong context. This is also not just why tickling feels good sometimes and not other times, but also why spanking can feel good and not good at other times. Like if you are already in a hot and heavy situation where you're very turned on and you're totally trusting and your partner's like really tuned into you and they swat you on the butt, that could, even though it would hurt in other contexts, it can feel very sexy at that time in the right context for some people. But if that exact same certain special someone swats your butt while you are in the middle of like trying to get your toddler dressed to take them to daycare, again, you just want to punch them in the face. Even though it's the same sensation, your brain interprets it differently because the context is different. And so I hear from partners all the time, like, I can't figure out what she wants because sometimes she likes it and sometimes she doesn't. Yes. (laughs) Yes. That's right. Sometimes she wants it. Sometimes she likes it. And sometimes she does not. You got to look at the context in which it's happening. Because it's, it's not as straightforward as that. And it's true for men and for women. Oh, which brings us to the arousal non-concordance piece, yes. which is so important. That gas pedal responds to pretty much any sexually relevant stimulus, whether it's the right context or not. So your genital blood flow can increase in response to sexually relevant related stimuli, even when it's in a not great context, and even when it's in a really bad context, like one where you don't trust your partner, one where you're not sure that you want to be there. Um, and even in cases of sexual violence, your body can sometimes respond because it's responding to the sex-related stimuli without reference to the rest of the context. Yeah, I think this is so important because um, I'm sure so many people um, feel shame and judge themselves for it feels like such a betrayal a response right for their body yeah. responding in, in context that they totally um are not 
on were board seriously were, not okay. Yeah. Yeah. Can you actually, yeah, go into more detail into explaining how that happens and the research sure. that's associated with that? So the nerd way of talking about it is uh, there's this thing called the, we, you read about it as the reward center. Um, I, calling it the reward center is a way oversimplification. There's actually three different components. One is the pleasure center, the liking center, which we just talked about. Sometimes things feel good in the right context, and sometimes the exact same thing will feel not good, depending on the context. Um, and then there's the wanting. So if you, uh, if you drop sugar water on the tongue of a newborn infant, it will make these faces and noises like a pleasure, right? And yeah. they're pleasure system is just setting off fireworks in their emotional brain when that happens. But then there's desire, which is not the same thing. Desire is, uh, it's mediated by this dopaminergic network in and way beyond your emotional brain. And it moves us toward or away from stimuli. Like, do I want more of that or do I want less of that? Uh, so it's more like your toddler following you around asking you for another, hey, can I have another cookie? Can I have another cookie? Can I have another cookie? Wanting and relating are clear, wanting and liking are related to each other for sure, yeah. but they are not identical, right? Mm -hmm. And then there's the third system, which is my favorite, and that is the learning system, which is like Pavlov's dogs. Mm -hmm. So Pavlov, he, you know, he trained these dogs to salivate in response to a bell. Anyone can do it. All you do is give a dog food, salivates automatically, and then you ring a bell. So you go food. Bell, salivate bell food bell salivate until you can just go bell salivate pavlov made the bell food related it predicted that food was happening does that mean the dog wanted to eat the bell <laughs> no doesn't mean the dog thought the bell was delicious no. no it had nothing to do with that it just meant this is a stimulus that is associated with this phenomenon and so my physiology is going to respond as if that phenomenon is happening without reference to liking without reference to wanting it happens with every emotional and motivational system we have there's hilarious research on say uh music and the experience of uh uh goose bumps so like, or your hair standing on end, people have this experience of music that really moves them and they, they get a rush and it feels like their hair is standing on end. Arousal non-concordance happens here. People report having goosebumps when they don't actually have goosebumps. They report not having goosebumps oh, wow. when they do, right? So it's every emotional and motivational system we have, including sex. The overlap, like the predictive value of genital response to actual sexual pleasure and desire is between 10% and 50%, which you're like, what does that even mean? It means there is no way to predict. Like you can't tell on an individual basis, on a moment by moment basis, whether a person's genital response necessarily has anything to do with whether they want or like what's happening. Their subjective experience just cannot be predicted. So if in the in the laboratory, this is people who are watching, their, their genitals are strapped in to a device that's measuring their genital blood flow. And in the laboratory, in this like small room by themselves, they're watching porn and they're rating on, it's called an arousometer. It's this little dial where they rate how turned on they feel. Their genitals can be responding with lots of blood flow and their arousometer is at zero. They're like, not necessarily, not just even like, no, I'm not turned on, but like, yuck, this is horrible. I don't want to be looking at this porn. But their genital blood flow is still happening because it is a sex-related stimulus, even if it's an unwanted stimulus. So sexually relevant. 
Right. Yeah. The sex, re, sex, sexually relevant stimulus is generating the response because that's what our bodies are supposed to do. That's your body working appropriately. It's just in an inappropriate situation. And it's not you that made the situation inappropriate. Like it's your partner not listening to you. It's whatever else is going on. Um, and we've been taught this. Oh, my go to example. As part of my research for Come As You Are, I read Fifty Shades of Grey. <laughs> and, uh, oh, I, let me I say, have not read it, so please. You are under no obligation to read it. <laughs> I, it did a lot of good things for opening up the national conversation about women's sexual pleasure and women's sexual desire. Um, I know for sure that lots of women had lots of orgasms because of these books. I know that uh, it introduced women to the idea of sex toys and some small local feminist woman operated sex toy stores, their businesses were saved at the bottom of the market crash in 2008 oh, because wow. of Fifty Shades of Grey and women learning that sex toys exist. And oh look, there's this really friendly safe place I can go to learn about sex toys and maybe buy a sex toy. So <clears throat> a lot of good things about Fifty Shades and in the first spanking scene, because there's a first spanking scene, uh, our heroine, Anastasia, has consented to this spanking, but she does not want it. And I read it very carefully looking for even one word about pleasure, and there is not one. She just is experiencing pain. Her face hurts from squinching it up so tight against the pain. She's squirming to get away. There's nothing she likes about this experience. And at the end of it, our hero, Christian Grey, puts his fingers in her vagina and says, feel this, Anastasia. Feel how much your body likes this. You're soaking just for me. As if, yeah, that's the proof. Right? Yeah. yeah. Like, as if her body's response, like, what does he get wrong there? Does her genital response mean that she wants or likes what's happening? It means that what's happening is sexually relevant. And yes, having your sexual and romantic partner touch your butt is sex-related, sexually relevant, whether it's wanted or liked, whether or not it's wanted or liked. But that doesn't tell him whether she wants or likes what's happening. She does. But the worst part about this for me in Fifty Shades is that even though in an email she later describes herself as feeling uh, debased, degraded, and abused, or something similar like that. Like, that's how she felt about it. But because he showed her that her genitals responded, she believes him. Because haven't we all been taught to believe other people's opinions about our bodies more than we trust what our bodies themselves are trying to tell us? And, that is and for so me, sad. Sad. that was the heartbreaking thing. And these are sold as romance novels that are like, you know, romantic. Like, that's love and it just reinforces this idea and I cannot tell you how many stories I've heard in real life of people having another a similar experience where they were not into it they were responding but they were didn't they didn't like or want what was happening and they even said to their partner I'm done no thank you and their partner says no you're so wet you're ready don't be shy shy like it doesn't take all the courage and confidence a woman has to say no to someone she likes whom she trusts whom, whose feelings she doesn't want to hurt yeah. but because he says no you're wet she 
doesn't trust her own internal experience, which is telling her that this is not what she wants to be doing. It's like the most profound form of gaslighting I can imagine. Like you're, you say you feel one way, but your body proves you feel something else. And we would never do this again. It happens with every emotional and motivational system we have. But if my mouth watered when I bite into like a moldy bruised peach, is anybody going to say to me, you said no, but your body said yes. Like, oh, Emily, you just don't want to admit how much you like that moldy bruised peach. We would never say that. It's only with sex that we decide that a person's body is the more honest indicator of what they really want and like than the person is. Yeah. Oh, I have a lot of feelings about this. Oh, yeah. No, yeah, me too. It's, it's absolutely heartbreaking. And, and I imagine, and you talk about this as well, that this happens with survivors of sexual violence yes. or rape, right? Mm -hmm. Where they yes. can, you know, hold on to this narrative where because of the, the message that maybe, absorbed from the culture. Maybe it that, wasn't really... Yeah rape because my yes I right. got a note from a student I talk about this I just did a TED talk in April um, and it was actually about this topic of arousal non-concordance and I told the story I taught a lecture of getting uh, of, uh, about arousal non-concordance and I got a note from a student after that lecture telling me this very common story of doing things she was happy to be doing with a person she was happy to be doing it with but they reached a point where that was really as far as she wanted to go and so she said no and he said, but no, you're wet, you're ready, don't be shy. And she told me that, this is a part I didn't say in the TED Talk, she told me that because her body had responded, she always believed she wasn't really allowed, like she shouldn't call it rape. Because there was some part of her that had said yes. That is so messed up. It's, yeah, really, like, and I've heard so many, so many of these stories. There's another, this one is particularly dark. This is a, a court case of uh, multiple instances of non-consensual sexual contact. And the perpetrator's lawyer wanted to make sure the jury knew that the victim had orgasms. Asked the victim on the stand, did you have orgasms? I'm about to say the really bad part. Ready? Yeah. She was 13. No. Oh. And it was a family member. What? Yeah. Like, that's how... And why? The judge fought him on this, but he was this lawyer, the perpetrator's lawyer was like, I think that those orgasms could be construed as consent. Like it's, I feel a little like unwell as I say those words out loud. It's so bad. That's, it's terrible, that's right? horrible. Yeah. yeah. Um, but that's how entrenched. And when I hear those stories, I have so much compassion for this young survivor whose relationship with her body has already been damaged by someone whose job it was to protect her. And I also know that we need to make sure that the adults around her have this information so they can begin teaching her, hey, listen, your genital response just means it was a sex-related stimulus. It doesn't mean it was wanted. It doesn't necessarily even mean it was pleasurable. It just means it was a sex-related stimulus. It definitely doesn't mean that you consented to it. Yeah, and that's why you know I wanted to speak about this because it's so yeah. important. And for everyone listening, I, let's send this message loud and tell clear. everyone you know, right? That because someone response... listening to this is going to be on a jury yeah. on a sexual assault related case, and someone in that jury is going to wonder, like, about that person's genital response. And it doesn't matter what genitals you have. We use this narrative against men as much as we use. Well, you got an erection, huh? <laughs> 
right? That's not what that means. It means it was a sex-related stimulus. It doesn't mean it was necessarily want. Yeah, absolutely. No matter what a person's genitals are, blood flow to their genitals is not what tells us whether something is wanted or liked. It is the person who can tell us that. Their words. Yeah, listen, listen to her words. Just listen to the words. Listen to the words. Yeah, and so I, I want to transition to another topic that I think is important um, and something that you speak about, which is the difference between responsive and spontaneous mm-hmm. desire. Can you speak about that? Because I think it's so another this... area where people have all kinds of misconceptions. Yeah, it's another area, another example of how we've been lied to forever about how this is supposed to work. So there's this standard narrative that how desire is supposed to work is you're just like walking down the street or having lunch or whatever, and suddenly out of the blue, you just want sex. Uh, Erica Moen, who's the cartoonist who illustrated Come As You Are, she draws this as a lightning bolt to the genitals. Kaboom! (laughs) Like you just want the sex there right now. And so you go home to your partner, you're like, I have kaboom. Would you like the sex, right? And that absolutely can be one of the normal healthy ways to experience desire, but it is not the only way. The other way is called in the research responsive desire. See, because spontaneous desire emerges in anticipation of pleasure, where responsive desire emerges in response to pleasure. And remember how complicated pleasure is. It depends on the context. Um, There's sort of two ways that people can experience responsive desire. One, I sort of call the cuddle snuggle version, where you're like on the couch, flipping through pages of a magazine, your partner sits next to you and you start like nuzzling against each other and saying nice things and maybe kissing on each other. And gradually your brain receiving all the information feels sort of warmed up and is like, oh, so it's not a lightning bolt. It's more like a warm bath of pleasure that makes your brain go, oh, sexy times, how about sexy times, right? So that's one way. Another way that it can happen is, the I think of it as the let's do this model, but there's a sex therapist in New Jersey named Christine Hyde who taught me this amazing analogy for this other way of experiencing responsive desire. So imagine you get invited to a party by your best friend. Of course you say yes, because it's your party and it's a best friend. It's your, it's a party and your best friend. You say yes. And then the date starts to approach and you're like, oh, we're going to have to find childcare. I don't know. There's going to be really heavy traffic. Do I really want to have to put on like real clothes on a Saturday night? I just, uh, I don't know. But you go because you said you would. And uh, what happens? Most of the time you have a great time at the party. If you are having fun at the party, you are doing it right. Same goes for sex. Like you, you know, it's Saturday at three o'clock. You, me, in the red underwear. Let's do this thing. So you, you know, the kids are over at their grandparents' house and you throw the last of the toys away and you put the last of the dishes in the dishwasher and you tromp up the stairs. You put your body in the bed with your partner. You let your skin touch your partner's skin and your body remembers, oh, right. I really like this person. I really like this. Let's do more of this. That is a normal, healthy sex life. When they look at research of couples who sustain strong sexual connections over multiple decades, it is not the couples who constantly can't wait to like stuff their tongue down each other's throats. Nor are they couples who even have sex very often. 
hardly any of us have sex very often, we are busy. It isn't even the couples who have wild, adventurous sex. One of one study from 2014 found that the best predictor of sex and relationship satisfaction wasn't any of those things. It wasn't how often, it wasn't what people did or even how many orgasms they have. It was whether they cuddled after sex. Oh. 15 minutes of cuddling was the best predictor of relationship and sexual satisfaction. The couples, right? That is not the model we're usually taught, but what the research tells us is the couples who sustain strong sexual connections are the ones who have their two characteristics. One, they have a strong friendship with real trust at the foundation of their relationship. And two, they prioritize sex. They make a decision that it matters for their relationship, that they set time aside, they stop doing all the other things they could be doing with that time, kids to raise, jobs to go to, friends to hang out with, other family members, God forbid they just want to watch a little Netflix. Stop doing all those things and you just put your body in the bed and do this, let's face it, sort of silly thing that we humans do because it matters for your relationship. Because spending that pleasurable time together builds a bond between the two of you. Not every couple does prioritize sex, and that's okay too. But those are not the couples, obviously, who will sustain strong sexual connections because it doesn't matter so much for them. But if you expect that your desire is supposed to be spontaneous, and if it's not spontaneous all the time, desire works the way pleasure does. It feels spontaneous in a context that allows your brain to interpret the world as a sexy, fun, pleasurable place. And your brain is not going to do that when you've got two small kids and you've been with your partner for 10 years with the accumulated resentments and frustrations that come with that. You have to decide in a really deliberate way to set those things aside and step into a special state of mind where you just are turning toward your partner with the same kindness and compassion that you would want your partner to bring to you. Right. And what are the differences between men and women when it comes to responsive and spontaneous desire? The research originated in trying to understand how women's sexuality worked. There was this really weird finding sometime in the early 80s where they discovered a large group of women, something like a third of women, who reported that they never or almost never experienced desire for sex, but they were completely sexually satisfied. They experienced pleasure, they had orgasms, they had sex on a regular basis. These were not dysfunctional women in any way, and yet they seemed to be lacking desire. So there was this body of research that began evolving specifically around women's sexuality because it seemed like it was something that was more common in women. Um, we do not yet have a survey instrument, for example, to assess responsive versus spontaneous desire, but it does seem to be more common in women than in men. I will say that um, when I wrote, <laughs> I feel so fancy, I wrote an op-ed in the New York Times about responsive desire. Uh, and when I did, I got more emails from men than from women saying, thank you for this language. It explains what I have been experiencing, which I, I don't think that means that me more men than women experience it. I think it means that, uh, it's really powerful for men to have this model of, and understand that there's more than one way to experience healthy sexual desire. And we've really been pinning them into a corner by insisting 
that their desire has to be spontaneous and constant or else there's something wrong with them. Like it's okay if your desire feels like it ebbs and flows. That's also normal. Yes. So spontaneous desire, normal, responsive desire, normal. Also normal. For a Almost everyone will women. experience both at different times in their lives. And there isn't right or wrong. Why is Where that? people, when people are really struggling, um, it's not because there's a lack of desire. It's when they put their body in the bed, right? Like they make the sex date and they show up and they don't experience pleasure. If sensation is missing or if there's discomfort. One time I said this thing about like you set up the time and you put your body in the bed and you let your skin touch your partner's skin. And one of the partners literally cringes away from me like, ugh. Hmm. And I was like, oh. So there's your problem. The problem is not a lack of desire. The problem is you really don't like the sex you are having. There's another sex therapist named Peggy Kleinplatz who says that sometimes lack of desire is just good sense. You should be having the kind of sex that is worth wanting. What kind of sex is worth wanting? If it's not pleasurable, if there's something about it that isn't right for you, then that's that's the part to fix. The desire is not the problem. And I imagine communication is probably oh very helpful here, right? Yeah. So communicating yeah, the with your partner about the beginning step of that yeah. is communicating about desire and how it doesn't have to be. Because partners, it is really lovely to feel that your partner wants you. It's wonderful, and one of the reasons why such a big deal has been made about desire is because people really want their partner to want them. Yes. I want my partner to want me. He wants me to want him. And we both know that we get tired and frustrated and busy, and sometimes you like you just got to set the clock or we travel a lot. So we have to schedule it or it'll never happen. And just because we've scheduled at a particular time, again, like, do I really want to put on pants on a Friday night? You, it's, you're like, Ugh, I guess. And then you get there and you're like, oh, right. I really like this person. I'm really glad to be here with this person. If that is the part that's missing, that's the part that uh, is the problem. Mm. The lack of desire. And it's but it's fun when we want each other. What I hope people will start feeling and thinking about spontaneous desire is that it's like a bonus, it's an extra, it's fun when it's there, and it's not a problem, it's not a disease when it's not there, as long as the pleasure and enjoyment is there once you arrive at the sex. You have to show up and see what happens, and if something good happens, then you are doing it right. I made up a three, did you know people believe things more when they rhyme? <laughs> They remember it better, but also they believe it more. So whenever you can, make wow. things rhyme. So here is okay. my rhyming version of this. You ready? Yes, please. Pleasure is the measure. Pleasure, Pleasure is the measure, is the measure. of sexual well-being. It's not how much you, like, kaboom, crave, want the sex. It's not how often you do it or who you do it with or even how many orgasms you have or what positions. It's none of that. It's whether or not you like the sex you are having. Mm, I and love if that. you like it, you are doing it right. Pleasure is the measure of yeah. sexual well-being. Awesome. So when you're communicating with your partner, acknowledging that it's fun and really validating when your partner spontaneously wants you, it is not the only normal, healthy way to experience desire. It is normal to set up sex dates or romance dates or whatever. And uh, 
have that be the primary way that you have sex is you show up the way you do at the dinner table because it's time. Mm. All right. <laughs> Good to know. Um, speaking of pleasure, I, I would like to bring up another subject. And I heard in preparation for this interview, I listened to some other uh, interviews that you've done. And one thing you've spoken about is sexual fantasies. Mm-hmm. And in particular, um, sexual fantasies that um, people may find to be um, not matching to their values, right? Like, for example, um, about non-consent, right? Um, mm-hmm. Can you speak a little bit more about that? Because I think it's important um, to reduce shame and stigma um, for those people who have those kind of fantasies. Sure, yeah. Um, yes, it is absolutely normal to have fantasies that are not a match for what you want to do in your actual life. Uh, and the reason why that's so clear is that the context for a fantasy is totally different from the context for doing it in real life. So with, for example, a non-consensual fantasy, I don't know why this has become my go-to example, but somebody told me this once and I've just been using it. Um, if you have, you know, you're by yourself in your own room masturbating to a fantasy of being surrounded by five strange men and like having them force themselves on you, that's one thing. But if you are actually alone in a room with five strange men who force themselves on you, that's a totally different context. Alone in your room, you are actually safe and in control and consenting to everything that's happening. Whereas when you're really in that room, really having people force themselves on you, you're not safe, you're not in control and you're not consenting, that's a totally different context. So it makes perfect sense that one would feel okay even if the other one doesn't. Sometimes people do wanna play with their fantasies and that's cool too. And if you don't, that is also totally cool. It doesn't mean you actually want to do that in real life. It means it's a fantasy that appeals to your accelerator. So where does that come from? Fantasies that do not match up to what you actually want in real life. It's another example of the ways that uh, wanting, learning and liking interact really complexly. We learn about sex when we're born. There's nothing that's sexually relevant except for genital sensations. So gradually, so from the day we're born, we start to build these links between genital response, our internal experience, and whatever external experience seems to be linked with those other things. Um, So that by the time we get to adolescence, there are some bridges that have been built between our external experience, our thoughts, our emotions, and our genital response. And we didn't get to choose what environment we got planted in. And we may be surrounded by some things that don't appeal to us rationally or even necessarily emotionally, but they got built into our brain as a sexually relevant stimulus and they might appeal on some emotional level. It might feel really safe and familiar because it's convenient and uh, it's been there for so long in our imaginations that it's easy for that to activate our, our accelerator without triggering the break because it didn't get linked in our brain as a fantasy, as an idea. It didn't get linked in our brain with the brakes getting hit. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. And it remains really flexible, especially for women. We're not sure why there's this difference for men and for women, but the flexibility of this is, it's very fluid for women. It's 
pretty fluid for men too, maybe a little bit less so. Hmm. And which, I mean, there's all kinds of theories about why. The one I find most convincing is that uh, from birth, if you're born into a body where all the adults around you are like, it's a boy, and they raise you as a boy, and you grow into the psychological identity and social role of a man, mm. you get taught that this thing that's happening outside your body that's visible, that uh, any adult who's changing your diaper can see and react to, um, you build this link really, this tight feedback loop between what's happening with your genitals that's so obvious uh, your internal experience in the external world, whereas for little baby girls, it's a girl. They raise you as a girl. You go into the psychological identity and the social role of a woman. You instead get, uh-uh, don't touch that, which right. teaches you to tune out from your genital sensations. This is why I thought it was going to be the awareness of the sensations that would be so important. It's not the awareness. We have to break down the wall that our culture may have built between us and our sexual bodies but just breaking down the wall is not enough if you still feel uncomfortable with what emerges. Your capacity to be non-judging about what you experience is the much deeper predictor of sexual satisfaction. To break down the wall that the culture has built between you and your sexuality and uh, not be afraid of what you find on the other side. Mm, yeah, so being able to fully embrace your experience. Yes, or failing that, as with body image, mm -hmm. just not running away. Yeah, yeah, making just, space Just for sitting it. still with it, yeah, making space. Oh, thank you for that. Um, and I would actually like to um, turn the conversation a bit to the role of self-compassion in the scope of your life and um, if you could tell me about a time in your life when you were most in need of self-compassion. Oh, man. <laughs> How far back can, should I? Uh, sorry, the, maybe the most intense moment in my life was when I was 18. My first sexual relationship is when I was 18, my first year in college. And because I come from a seriously dysfunctional family of origin, of course, my first sexual and romantic relationship was seriously dysfunctional. Mm. Um, and when I broke up with him, he went from being my boyfriend to being my stalker. Oh. And he called me in the middle of the night and threatened to kill me. Uh, it was bad. Yeah. Uh, it was a long time ago. I'm doing great now just to make sure everybody knows I'm completely fine. And when I was 18 years old, it got really bad. I felt completely alone and isolated and a failure. And because I was this perfectionist, sort of driven, high-achieving young woman, mm. I felt like it was my fault. And if I couldn't deal with it all by myself, then there was something wrong with me. And I couldn't tell anybody about this failure I had had. So I felt totally isolated and helpless, which are the two worst things a person can feel. Um, and so I was thinking about why I should stay alive. So that was the moment when if I had known the phrase self-compassion, I probably would have been resistant to it because there was no part of my life that had taught me that I could be kind and gentle and forgiving with myself. So that's the moment would have been, it would have been super valuable. And when I look back at sort of the chain of mistakes that everybody makes as they grow into adulthood. It was when I started meditating and learning to be aware of what was happening inside me in a non-judgmental way. That 
it took a couple of years, but it gradually generalized to being aware of what was happening in my life and being non-judgmental of that as well. So that when I made choices that ended up not being ideal, I could forgive myself while also learning from it. It took, it took three or four years of mindfulness practice before it shifted from just being aware of what was going on in my body to what was going on in my life. But when that shift happened, that's when all the pieces, the puzzle pieces in my brain really started to reorganize and it changed a lot of things for me. And, and so, yeah, I mean, thank you for sharing that really vulnerable experience. Um, and I'm doing great now. Just BS. I'm so glad. <laughs> so people know. <laughs> if you could go back to that time in your life and talk to yourself, what would you say to yourself? Oh, gosh. So I have From actually thought about this. Yeah. Because my, my education as a sex educator, my training as a sex educator began at the same time that that relationship began. Oh, wow. So the foundation of my whole mission in life as a sex educator is tied inextricably to my own experience with relationship violence. Uh, so on the one hand, I want to go, exp I want to hand 18 year old Emily a copy of Come As You Are and be like, so you're going to need this. <laughs> this will help you out a lot. <laughs> mm. And then also reassure 18 year old me all of this is going to turn into your purpose. This is your mission, is to teach women to live with the confidence and joy that you're going to learn through this really painful process. That doesn't make it suck any less. It just means there's a reason. Mm. So you would give her hope. Oh, yes. Yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it sounds... I, and again, I don't know if at eighteen I would have believed me, hmm. but I don't. Yeah, I don't know if I. If there's anything I could have said to me that would have, I don't know. No, I think it would have. Because yeah. I was looking. I was clearly like looking for like why, what did I do? What's going on here? And if someone had said, "Oh, so it turns out this is going to be your job." Your job is going to be make sure that other people who are having this experience know how to process it. Going to be to prevent other people from having experiences like this. I would have been, I would have, it would have been a struggle, but I would have gotten there. Yeah. yeah. So creating meaning out of that painful experience. And, and yeah. also, you know, that I think it's important that a lot of people who, who have really bad things happen to them, um, think that it's their fault yep and that's not the case right like bad things happen and yeah that doesn't mean that it's your fault um, yeah I mean again would 18 year old me have understood if I had sat and explained about so what you learned in your family of origin is that contempt is what love looks like and that's not true like would she have understood that no but yeah maybe it helps to have someone say p.s this is not something you did wrong. That person on the other end of the phone isn't allowed to treat you that way. Right. It doesn't matter. Nothing else matters. They're not allowed to do that. That's not all right. Yeah. Well, I would have liked to hear that. Yeah. Hopefully there's someone who hears this who's like, are you sure, Emily, that they're not allowed to? Because I did some things that like might have. No, 
there is nothing you can do that is punishable with that kind of behavior of a person threatening you, of a person hurting you, of a person doing things you don't want them to do. There's literally nothing you can do that means that you deserve to be treated that way. Not one thing, nothing. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I am so glad that you, um, you know, are here to talk about it. And I'm so glad that you, you have that clarity now. I was so fortunate to be surrounded by extraordinary humans who could listen to me and like have that loving presence and calmness and ability to reassure me. Because again, my training as a sex educator started at the same time as my abusive relationship. So as I was experiencing this really not okay situation, I was also learning about victim blaming. I was learning about mm -hmm. like, what are some of the red flags and warning signs of an abusive relationship? I was learning that sometimes people feel like it's their fault and it can really help. If you explain to them, no, it's not your fault. It's really not your fault. It even helps if you can help people uh, who are experiencing sexual violence to reframe that it's not sex. Sex requires consent. It's only sex if there is consent. So what's happening to you is an act of violence. It's power. It's your sexuality being used against you as a weapon, which no one's allowed to do. They're breaking the rules when they do that. And there's nothing you can do, nothing that you can have done that justifies their behaving in that way. It's completely unacceptable. Yeah. So I was, I was so lucky to stumble into that experience of those trainings and those wonderful people at the same time that I was stumbling into this really bad situation that ended well because how, I had those people around me. Yeah. How did you get through that? I mean, how did you get out of that? Oh, my family was there for me and my friends and the people who were training me as a sex educator could listen to my stories and be like, so remember when we told you about this? And I'd be like, oh, right. Um, so I, I took time off. I started going to, I was in college and I started going to school part-time and I got a part-time job and I just spent a year healing. Mm. I took a big chunk of time to repair and that's when I began building a connection with my body and being aware of my own internal experience in an entirely new way, which in turn, so I have a, I have a twin sister. I have an identical twin sister. Oh. We were living in the same house while this was happening, oh, wow. but because we're from an alcoholic family, we didn't talk about it at all because you keep secrets. Right. You don't tell each other anything like this is basically oh. a wall between us. Um, but 10 years later, she was in grad school. And she didn't have an abusive relationship. She had an abusive uh, grad supervisor who was uh, treating her in really not okay ways. And her stress level was so high, she ended up hospitalized with undiagnosable abdominal pain, a white blood cell count that was through the roof. And they went home and told her to relax. And she was like, I'm like, I don't know how to relax. <laughs> yeah, what is that? Oh. Like, what does that even mean? Yeah. And so like in that moment, years later, a decade or more later, I could be like, so let me introduce you to meditation and self-compassion and mindfulness and neutral non-judging. And here's how your stress response cycle works. And I taught her all this stuff, things that are in Come As You Are, the chapter four stress response cycle and all that kind of stuff. And uh, what she says now, actually what happened was uh, I taught it to her and then I wrote about it in the book 
And then I went and traveled all around North America and Europe and heard from women all over that like, yeah, all that sex science, Emily, that's really great. Thanks for that. But man, it's that section about feelings mm. and stress. That's the really, that's the really life changing part. Uh, so I went home to my sister and I was like, so people keep telling me that my sex book, the best part about it is the part about stress and love and feelings. And she was like, well, duh, because whoever teaches you that kind of stuff, like that's, I mean, when you taught me that, that saved my life. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, talking, sharing is important. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Telling other people. It's actually, so when she said that, I was like, so we should write a book about that. And that is what the next book is. Ooh. Amelia and I wrote it together. And it starts with the stress response cycle. The whole last chapter is about self-compassion. Oh, my God. Yeah. Like. That's amazing. So that it'll, it won't be out until next January. But uh, that's been, it, it came directly. I mean, it started with my own terrible experience when I needed self-compassion myself and grew over decades to me writing about it in this other book and teaching it to my sister. And then my sister and me writing in this book, hopefully to reach hundreds of thousands of other women so that we can all spread it and share it. You know, this is the work you do with your podcast is letting people know here are the ways. One, you're allowed to have a kind, compassionate relationship with yourself. Honestly, you are. Um, one of the things that's important to us in the book is that we talk about how, so for example, body self-criticism, there's all this like, love your body. You should love your body. Totally. And here's the thing. The second you walk out your door or turn on the TV or the radio or the internet, you are surrounded. Like you just want to see what the weather is. And there's this ad over there judging your belly fat. Like, oh my God, yeah. it is really hard to consistently love your body when literally everywhere you go, everything is telling you you're not allowed to. We so we want to honor how genuinely difficult it is, how much you need to practice this stuff every day and try to create a context for yourself, a bubble to protect yourself from the most toxic of these messages so that you can have a protected, loving relationship with your body in the face of a culture that does not want you to do that. What are some of your strategies for, you know, inoculating yourself from that? Yeah, part of it, I mean, a relatively straightforward strategy is a sort of like media purge, yes. block, don't participate in, get rid in your life of anything that makes you feel like shit. This is what I tell my, my right? patients all the time. Yes. Yeah. And I follow that advice. Because yes. they, they, they want you. The people who make it want you to feel like shit. Yes. Uh, I talked to a psychology professor who said that when they do research on mood in college students, they'll give college women women's magazines to induce depression. Mm, makes sense. If they need to study negative mood, they give them magazines because they reliably induce self-critical thoughts and feelings. Like they're designed to be toxic and make you feel like shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know I agree. Yeah, absolutely. So get rid of the stuff that makes you feel like shit. Um, and another is the uh, practice of you take off as much of your clothes as you can tolerate. You look in a mirror at what you see there and you write down everything you see that you like. And the first time you do this, like your brain's going to be flooded with all the self-critical thoughts that uh, the cult, my sister calls it the bikini industrial complex. <laughs> yeah. The bikini industrial it. complex, which is literally like 
a billion dollar industry oh invested in making you hate yourself and profiting off the, all the ways that you try to make your body acceptable. Yes. Like they planted all these ideas in your head and they want you to hate yourself. So the first thing that will happen is your brain will, and that's fine. Your brain will flow with those things. Just like notice those and let them go and then write down what you see that you like. If it is your eyebrows, write that. If it's your eyelashes, if it's your ankle bones, whatever it is, if it's your spirit, Whatever you see that you like, write that down. And then you do it again the next day and you do it again the next day. And this gradually helps to build a real bridge between you and your body, not one that's mediated by other people's opinions about what your body is supposed to be. Have this, you done this? Access yeah, I do it. Yeah. You do it Pretty, routinely. Like. Yeah, on a regular basis. Not every single day, but pretty regularly, <laughs> especially so we just turned 41, my sister and I, um, and my sister's starting to have hot flashes, like menopause is on us already. Mm, and cool. many things are changing about our bodies. So like we got really good at loving our bodies when we were, you know, 30, 35, and then it all changed again. And so we need to relearn how to love the bodies we have now, instead of wishing they were back to what they were when we were 30. It's, a, it's an ongoing process forever. Like your body keeps changing. You need to keep learning that it is a beautiful, miraculous place to live. Yeah. And so self-compassion is a practice, a lifelong yes. practice. Yes. Yeah. Literally lifelong. Yeah. All right. Well, as we come to towards the end of our interview, I have one more question. Um, what has been the most surprising part so far um, for you about your self-compassion journey? Oh, the most surprising part about my self-compassion journey. Oh, yeah. If you had asked me, Emily, what sort of impact is your own practice of self-compassion ultimately going to have on the world? I would have assumed that it was just me having a better relationship with myself. And it has done that. But then it started making my relationships with my friends and family better. And then it made me a better teacher. And then it allowed me to write a book, even though writing a book is really hard. And then it was part of the book and has given me this opportunity to teach other people self-compassion. So the combination of sharing the idea with other people and practicing it myself and other people feeling the ways that I, I'm not always successful. Let me be totally transparent that there are days when I fall short, that I get home from doing a talk and I'm like, oh, I suck. Why was that so terrible? Emily, you suck. Like that, there are those days. But it's an active practice for me. And I think people can feel the ways that my own self-compassion compassion practice has shaped the way I can respond to other people who've experienced anything like the sort of suffering I have experienced, or even when they've experienced stuff I have never experienced. My ability to emphasize, empathize, and resonate with their experience and model, hey, listen, what would it be like if you felt toward your suffering the way I feel toward your suffering? What would that be like? So I, uh, I am surprised that my self-compassion practice has turned into something that helps other people. Yeah. How did that happen? <laughs> I completely feel you on that. Yeah, I feel the same way. 
I find that um, my own experiences with suffering and being able to turn towards that with compassion helped me sit mm-hmm. with the suffering Other of people's. others. Yeah. 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 So self-compassion I, I don't think I'd be selfish. able to do it. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I, like, I absolutely did start it because I wanted to uh, have a better relationship with me. I, I didn't know. I think if somebody had told me, like, hey, you know, if you do this, you'll actually be helping loads and loads of other people, I, that might have been really motivating. Because, mm. of course, as a woman, I'm very motivated by helping other people. Um, but no, my where I got started was I just want to, like, stop feeling terrible all the time. Yeah. And then it turned into come as you are. Yeah. Well, I am. It has been an absolute pleasure to speak with you today and I'm super excited about your upcoming book and if you would agree I would love to have you back when that's out oh I'd love to you should talk to Amelia too I would love to yeah yeah. she's amazing to talk to about this stuff okay yeah great maybe both she's very no bullshit (laughs) nice good I like that um and so um, can you say where listeners can learn more about you if they want to get in touch with you or learn more about what you do? Sure. Uh, my website is emilynagoski.com and you'll see a list of events. There are no upcoming events because I'm trying to finish the book, <laughs> yes. uh, but there will be um, starting in sort of October. I'll be going lots and lots of places. Next year, I'm going to Israel and Russia and oh. uh, uh, Copenhagen. Um, and uh, Hawaii and California and all over. So 2019 is going to be huge. Fabulous. Yeah. Uh, And my Twitter is Emily, just at Emily Nagoski. All right. Well, those are my two main places. Thank you so much, Emily. It's been an absolute joy to have you here today. For me too. All right. And take care. Have a good day. Thanks. I'm waving. You can't see it, but I'm waving. (laughs) Me too. All right. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening. You can hear this episode again, learn more about today's guest, and hear other inspiring interviews at CompassionPodcast.org. That's C-O-M-P-A-S-S-I-O-N-P-O-D-C-A-S-T dot org. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to play an active role in amplifying its message, please take a moment to rate and review on iTunes and share this podcast widely with anyone who you think would benefit from a bit more self-compassion. You can help ensure that this podcast continues to be produced by making it more financially sustainable. Donate at patreon.com. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com. Here, you can also unlock bonus content and compassion meditations guided by me. The music you're hearing behind me now is by the talented C. Burroughs. So can you let go of the light that you were all alone? And can you get out from behind it? It's just a telephone.